I don't want to be alarmist and say we're going to lose all of these sites, but many of them will be very severely damaged. Many sites, particularly more inland and are not threatened by sea level rise or storms, uh, are more likely to survive. And we're going to have to make choices. The National Park Service is going to have to decide how to spend its budget. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. As winter fades into the distance and warmer weather approaches, I hope you're all thinking about taking a break and getting outside. With climate change in mind, today we're discussing what places you might want to prioritize. And stick around after the interview. Katie Love is back with another installment of This Week in Science History. By the time you hear the sound of my voice, I'll be on vacation. We're recording a few days before I skip town to hang out in the hills of an undisclosed location. I'm feeling pretty fortunate that I can leave the podcast in the capable hands of the team back home. Thanks, team. I also feel pretty lucky that I get to chill out with my own personal scientist, Steve, and some of our best friends, and try not to think about climate change for a few days but I bet it will be on my mind anyway. Because when I'm taking breaks between hiking and reading, I'll be thinking about all the other places around the world I want to see, like Himalayan villages in Nepal, Angkor Wat in Cambodia, or even some of the national parks in the U.S. that I haven't visited. And unfortunately, many of these vacation spots and tourist destinations are at risk of changing dramatically or even being completely lost as the climate changes around them. So what landmarks are on your bucket list? What sites are you hoping to see? Are they threatened by sea level rise, like the Piazza San Marco in Venice, or being slowly transformed by invasive species that migrate with warmer weather, like Yellowstone National Park? How can we identify and protect these beautiful, culturally and historically meaningful sites Or do we have to let them go? My colleague Adam Markham is the deputy director of our climate and energy program here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He just got back from the Orkney Islands in Scotland, where he and a team of climate change experts have been working together on a climate vulnerability scale for parks, monuments, natural wonders, and historical sites around the world. Adam joined me to talk about what defines a World Heritage Site whether they can be protected from a changing climate, and the places in the world you should visit sooner rather than later if you can. Oh, and he also tells us the best spot to view Viking graffiti. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So um, I'm detecting a little uh, note in your accent. It doesn't sound like a typical Connecticut accent. Oh, no, I'm originally from London, so but I've been in the States for 25 years, so whenever I go back to the UK, people think I have an American accent. So. Uh-huh. so you were just back from Scotland, literally uh, two days ago, where there was an important um, workshop. Yes, yeah, so we were in Scotland to organize a technical workshop at the World Heritage Site in the Orkney Islands. So the Orkney Islands are right off the north of Scotland, 
Um, they're sort of on the way to, to Scandinavia and Norway. And they have an amazing World Heritage Site, which is called the Heart of Neolithic Orkney, which has archaeological sites going back over 5,000 years. So we were there to look at how climate change is affecting the archaeology and the sites and have a workshop uh, to assess the future likely impacts of climate change and try to determine the risk. And in doing that, we were testing a new tool, which UCS has been helping to develop, called the Climate Vulnerability index, which we hope can do help us do rapid assessments for World Heritage Sites around the world, including in the US. How does the Climate Vulnerability Index test work? Well, you get a bunch of experts and stakeholders in a room for a couple of days, and you work through some worksheets and choices. So first of all, we were looking at the different kinds of climate drivers that might affect a World Heritage Site, an archaeological site, and then we narrowed that down to the three that would be the most impactful, and we spent most of the rest of the workshop talking about how those uh, types of impacts, which included increased precipitation, rainfall, uh, storms, and sea level rise, would affect the site. And so what would that mean for tourism at the site? What would it mean for the physical fabric of the site? What would it mean for the farmers and the people who live around the site? So were you actually using the the site there, Scarabray, as as the test site? Yes, there's the heart of Neolithic Orkney has four uh, prehistoric sites. The most famous is Scarabray, which is uh, the best preserved Neolithic or Stone Age village in, in Western Europe. There's also the Ring of Brodgar, which is an amazing stone circle. So if you think of Stonehenge, it's in that kind of category. Uh, in fact, Stonehenge may have got the idea from Orkney and the Ring of Brodgar. The culture may actually have moved south rather than, as many people think, north. And then there's a chambered tomb called Maze Howe, which was built several thousand years Years ago, but a few hundred years ago, the Vikings broke into it and left lots of runes and graffiti. So it's a great—it's an amazing piece of prehistoric, prehistoric architecture, but it's also full of a fantastic collection of Viking graffiti. Tell me a little bit more about sort of the specifics of this site and how the test will unfold. So the idea is that in a three-day period, you can work through all of these impacts. And at the end, you come out with a table which says, okay, what's the exposure and sensitivity to climate change for the site? And what's the adaptive capacity? So are there resources available to try and do something about those impacts? How uh, is there money that would be able to help build a seawall? And if there's not many resources, as there aren't in many parts of the world, then the adaptive capacity is low. You come out with a score, an overall score. And then the idea is that we'll be able to compare the score for this site with sites all around the world. So what we're trying to do is get to a point where there's a comparable index for all World Heritage Sites, which just doesn't exist right now. So we know that many World Heritage Sites, and there are 23 in the US, most of them national parks, are affected by climate change, but there haven't been any studies which say, well, what's the state of World Heritage as a whole? There are more than 1,100 sort of cream of the crop sites that are around the world. How did these four sites fare? What, what was their score? Uh, they came out as very high vulnerability, which is what we expected, because we know that they're already eroding 
Uh, they're eroding, and they're also close to, they're on the ocean, is that right? Yeah, one of them, Scara Bray, is on, on the ocean. The others are suffering from flooding in worsening storms and from increased precipitation. So just like in the northeast United States, heavy rainfall has increased over the last few decades in Scotland. So heavy rainfall is now sort of 25% more prevalent and predicted to get worse in Scotland. Give me a few examples of some of the more famous World Heritage Sites. Yeah, I mean, they're places everybody's going to have heard of. It's Venice, uh, the centre of London. Paris is a World Heritage City. The Statue of Liberty is a World Heritage Site. Yellowstone National Park and Chaco Canyon are both national... uh, Well, they're national parks, but they're also World Heritage Sites. Uh, The Great Barrier Reef. So the thing about World Heritage is that it includes both cultural sites, so you would say Statue of Liberty is a cultural site and natural sites like the Great Barrier Reef. And one of the reasons we've been looking at the issue of of an index is because you might think of there's a way to look at natural sites and say, yeah, the Great Barrier Reef, it's affected by uh, coral bleaching and warm water temperatures. But how do you compare that with a cultural site? And our CVI methodology enables you to compare apples with apples rather than apples with oranges. So, Adam, summer is right around the corner. People are making their travel plans. With climate change in mind, what are the top five, seven, ten places that are that are on your bucket list to, to visit? You know, I, I have visited Yellowstone National Park several times, and I hope I'll also get to visit it again uh, this year. I mean, it's one of my favorite World Heritage Sites. Many people probably don't know that it's a World Heritage Site, but it's, you know, it's a fantastic national park. They probably also don't know that it's quite severely being impacted by climate change. It will always be an amazing large-scale ecosystem, but that ecosystem is going to change as a result of things that are happening from climate. What's happening? Well, some of the the snow is melting earlier, which is changing stream flow. Temperature is increasing throughout the park, as it is in that part of the United States. The risk of fire is greater, and the fires are becoming more intense throughout the West, and the fire season is longer, so that some of these forests, when they they burn in Yellowstone, they won't grow back with the same species of tree. They may turn into grassland, for example. They may not even be forests when they come back. And then we're also losing a a high-elevation species, the whitebark pine, much of which has died out because of uh, mountain pine beetles attacking those forests because we have warmer winters, which allows the beetles to survive more successfully and sometimes have two populations in one year. And they're destroying these trees, some of which are hundreds of years old. And the key in that ecosystem is that the whitebark pine provides uh, a pine nut, which is a vital food supply for the grizzly bear population of Yellowstone National Park. So indirectly, climate change is affecting the grizzly bears through the death of trees, which provide one of their key foods in in times of uh, food scarcity. Give me another one of your top places. Well, another one is... The Sydney Opera House, incredible piece of architecture, 20th century architecture. It's a world heritage site. You wouldn't probably think that anything about it would be affected by climate change. But in fact, the changing sea temperature may change the uh, damage rate to the wooden pilings that the structure is built on. But I just recently heard also that the acoustics internally 
on the wall are um, driven by a particular kind of wood panelling which comes from what's called white birch. It's not a birch as we know it, it's actually a tropical forest species that grows only in parts of Australia and that tropical forest species may well be impacted by climate change and so you have to think about what are these more these slightly less tangible impacts. So right. the sound quality in the Sydney Opera House may be affected if we can't replace the wood panelling inside because the tree has disappeared. Appeared. So what else is on your list? Well, um, I think another U.S. site that I love is uh, Chaco Canyon. And there's a different sort of energy issue with Chaco Canyon. It's probably not that uh, sensitive to climate change because it's in a pretty dry desert already. And so it, when it gets warmer and drier, there probably there will be impacts, but probably not huge. Chaco Canyon has these incredible what they call great houses, which are remains of the the Chaco Pueblo, ancient Pueblo culture. But it's now being encroached on by uh, oil drilling and fracking, and there are thousands of wells around the Chaco National Park. And under this administration, you know, the drive for increasing drilling on public lands is also threatening national parks. And so I, on the one side, there's the climate impacts, and on the other side, there's the demand for energy and drilling impacts. And so Chaco Canyon is one that's at, at great risk from that. How about international sites? Well, a place that I've always wanted to go is uh, called Kilwa Kiswani in Tanzania on the coast. It's a, you know, not a very big uh, site, but it is, it's sort of a confluence of um, Arab and African trading and a place where uh, Islam came into, came into Africa through the trading routes. Um, there's an 11th century mosque there and there's a lot of buildings from the 9th century right the way through to sort of uh, colonial times in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it's right on the coast. It's poorly resourced, so they don't have a lot of funds to maintain the buildings. And it's highly susceptible to sea level rise and storms uh, pulling away bits of the foundations and, and rocks and such like. And so that's one of those places that if we don't do something fairly soon about it, much of it will be destroyed by sea level rise and storms. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Now let's get back to our interview. Aside from sea level rise, drought, fire, are there places that are being um, affected by climate change in unexpected ways? In Arizona, there's an adobe-built colonial mission called Tumacacori. And something people probably don't think of that much is how much maintenance it takes to maintain adobe buildings. You have to, probably most years, you have to be putting new 
mud and plaster on. And the National Park Service spends a lot of money doing that, and we know they're under-resourced for their maintenance. But Tumakakori has recently been damaged by uh, heavy rainfall, and so the increase in maintenance needs plus extreme rainfall events damages adobe buildings. So that's one less thought of kind of, kind of impact. Outside of the U.S., a place that is... Um, is quite interesting from a climate point of view. It's called the Cape Floral Region. So it's in South Africa, the bottom tip of South Africa. It's one of the world's most uh, rich area for endemic plants. And a lot of species of insects, like ants, that are involved in pollinating and birds that are um, attached to the particular species. And so that area is experiencing much less rainfall, so it's getting drier there. And you also have a problem with, with increasing wildfires. But the temperature change the drying and the wildfires are going to just make it not possible for many of the plant species that it's known for to survive there. Of all the U.S. sites that are under risk, which are the most protectable? In other words, if we reduce emissions to the levels we need, which ones might be around for our grandchildren if we do something now? I don't want to be alarmist and say we're going to lose all of these sites, but many of them will be very severely damaged. I mean, we've talked in the past at UCS about Jamestown in Virginia, which is, you know, this is the beginning of sort of colonial America or one of the sites, the beginning of colonial America. And it's just a couple of meters above sea level. And so water is already coming up into the archaeological works. There's erosion on the James River. So... Jamestown will get smaller over time and bits of it will be destroyed and disappear. But many sites, particularly more inland, that are not threatened by sea level rise or storms uh, are more likely to survive. And we're going to have to make choices. The National Park Service is going to have to decide how to spend its budget. Is it going to move buildings back like uh, Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was moved a couple of decades ago? Uh, the U.S. government had to spend $100 million restoring the infrastructure at the Statue of Liberty after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. So if you imagine the kind of money that we will have to spend to maintain and restore both buildings and natural ecosystems that have been damaged by climate change, the resource need is huge, and we're clearly not going to have those resources. So the National Park Service and people who live in the communities around parks will have to start talking about what we're sort of saying, learning to live with loss. What are you going to lose and what does it mean? You'll have memories, but the um, the attachment to place will be gone for some people. So it's we're going to have to learn to live in a different way. Things don't stay as they are. And of course, the more we do to reduce emissions from fossil fuels, the less of those kinds of choices we will have to make. So what about Angkor Wat in Cambodia? This is on my list of places that I'd like to, to visit. Yeah, that's a very interesting one. Angkor Wat is a World Heritage Site. It's a very highly visited uh, World Heritage Site. And it's on a fairly high water table. So there's a real risk that climate change, if it involves more water coming into the area, could increase flooding and erosion from flooding at Angkor Wat. 
However, we don't really know. There's not much uh, peer-reviewed literature, if any, out there about climate change in Angkor Wat. And so that's it's a good example of the kind of place that we would want to go in and do a CVI analysis to find out what the vulnerability is. Because right now I can guess, but I can't tell you. We need that, that climate vulnerability index to sort of put everything in a kind of perspective. Yes, we do. And that's that's why we've been working uh, to try to develop it. And we will be taking uh, the results from the Orkney workshop to the World Heritage Committee meeting this summer, which is in Baku, Azerbaijan. And the idea is to get the World Heritage Committee to get them to uh, start to recognize the need for the CVI. And eventually our aim is for it to be adopted by the World Heritage Committee. But that's going to take uh, more examples and, and the kind of advocacy that UCS is so good at doing. Another place I am definitely planning to visit is Nepal. Um, not this summer, but uh, probably within the next couple of years. What do I need to be aware of there? Well, the Himalayas of Nepal and India are high mountain areas, and so the tops of the Himalayas are unlikely to get so warm that the ice near the top is going to melt. But lower down, the glaciers in the valleys and Sagamatha National Park in Nepal is a World Heritage Site. And people are really worried about the changes in in the, the ice melt lower down there. Because what happens is you get these melting glacial lakes building up high up above the villages and communities. And if they overflow or, um, or flood, then whole communities can be, be washed away. Also, the water from the Himalayas is vital water for many, many communities way down hundreds of miles away for their drinking water supply. So if you lose that ice over time, then rivers will start to dry. So this combination of local danger from, from lake overflow and then eventual loss of water is something that's happening in mountain regions all over the world, but especially in the Himalayas. Adam, if you were to take all the presidential candidates, Republicans and Democrats, independents, on a road trip to one historical site that will be affected by climate change, where would you take them? (laughs) (laughs) I knew I'd get (laughs) you. Oh, um, one site to take the presidential candidates. I think I would probably take them to Yellowstone. And we talked about Yellowstone. It's iconic in the United States. It's iconic worldwide. And the changes are kind of subtle. I think if you took them to Glacier National Park, where the glaciers are melting, they kind of would expect it. You took them to the Florida Everglades, also a World Heritage Site, and you would see uh, sea level rise affecting the mangroves. Again, they would expect it. But I think most people would be surprised at the number of ways in which climate change is subtly changing Yellowstone, from the wildfires to uh, the wetlands, to the grasslands, to the forests, to the grizzly bears. And I think they would be shocked by the number of ways in which this iconic ecosystem is under threat. How would you keep them in line on the bus? <laughs> <laughs> I would I would have them, I would issue them with earphones and, and make them listen to UCS podcasts and they would come out much better informed at the end of it. I like that. 
Good answer. Yes, I thought so. So, Adam, how do you sleep at night with all of this knowledge about everything that's happening? Well, I, I, um, I'm sleeping less well than I used to because the problem is getting worse. But I do think, you know, we at UCS are trying to do something about it. And so that keeps me going and positive. And, you know, frankly, as a scientist, it's interesting to learn and understand these things. And by understanding them, then perhaps we have a hope of changing. Well, Adam, thanks for taking the time to um, sit down and talk to me. I think our listeners will have some good ideas about what to put on the top of their lists. That's great. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It's time for a short segment we call This Week in Science History with Katie Love. This week in science history, we're going to look at New England's dark day. And no, it has nothing to do with sports. On May 19, 1780, around mid-morning, instead of getting brighter, the skies became progressively dimmer. As far north as Portland, Maine, and as far south as New Jersey, Day seemed to become night. Frogs and crickets chirped as though it were dusk. Cows returned to their paddocks as they were accustomed to do at nightfall. And candles were needed to see even at noon. With no means of quick long-distance communication, such as telephone, radio, or even telegraph at the time, the populace was left without information. And many turned to their religion for answers. As clergyman Timothy Dwight wrote at the time, a very general opinion prevailed that the Day of Judgment was at hand. Abraham Davenport, a member of the Connecticut Governor's Council, which was meeting that day, took a somewhat more sanguine approach, famously saying, I am against adjournment. The Day of Judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. And still others turned not toward religion, but toward their local tavern for respite. The darkness continued through the rest of the day and then into the night, but lifted in the morning, with New England residents none the wiser to its cause. Suspected culprits ran the gamut from solar eclipse or meteor strike to divine retribution for the violence of the still unfolding Revolutionary War. A Harvard professor at the time, Samuel Williams, made a study of Dark Day, gathering personal accounts and weather pattern data Along with several others, he came to the conclusion that faraway forest fires were the likely culprit. Centuries later, they were proved right, as a dating technique analyzing tree rings indicated that there was an enormous forest fire raging in Ontario in the spring of 1780. Winds pushed the smoke and haze across New England, obscuring the sun and darkening the skies. A similar effect happened recently in the San Francisco Bay Area last fall. The campfire in Northern California the deadliest in the state's history, devastated local communities, burning more than 10,000 homes and killing roughly 70 people. The smoke and haze from the fire also darkened the skies and led to such bad air quality that breathing the air in San Francisco was equivalent to smoking 10 cigarettes in a day. These days, unlike back in 1780, when the skies go dark, we can easily identify and communicate the cause. Yet wildfires can still be viewed as a portent. Heat-trapping emissions from human activities are raising global temperatures and changing the climate, leading to a likely rise in wildfire severity and frequency. But it's not too late to act. What we do now has the power to influence the frequency and severity of these fires and their effects on us. By engaging in fire safety efforts, 
creating buffer zones between human habitation and susceptible forests, and meeting home and city fire safety standards, we can help reduce our current risks. And by taking steps to reduce our impact on the climate, we can help to keep our forests, our homes, and our health safe. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Adam Markham. This Week in Science History by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.